One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion Pages, and this week I'm joined by three of our columnists, Roger Boys, Anne Treneman, and Matt Ridley. Ukraine gave away its nuclear arsenal 20 years ago. Would it have fared better in its showdown with Russia if it had kept the bomb? Almost certainly. Owning nuclear weapons is still a measure of a significant power. Iran is determined to cheat its way to a bomb. Saudi Arabia is ready to arm up. Every dictator in the world has learned a lesson from Libyan leader Gaddafi, who scrapped plans to go nuclear and met a grisly death. Now, Ukraine thinks it has been bamboozled too. It suits the press to treat Nigel Farage as either a joke or a dangerous right-wing demagogue. But I would argue that both of these miss the point. He is a politician, and finally, after years of faffing around, he is taking himself and his party seriously. It suits him if we, the media, don't take him seriously. But why can't we? Sweden has halved lung cancer deaths compared with the rest of Europe by allowing snus, a tobacco product banned in the rest of Europe. Now, e-cigarettes are growing in popularity so fast and are so much safer than smoking, and such a popular aid to quitting, that they could save huge numbers of lives. Yet the bureaucracy, edged on by vested interests, does all it can to get in their way. So those are our three topics for today's podcast. And Roger Boy is going to start with you. Ukraine has been dominating the the news. And I've lost count, I think, of the number of articles you have written on this subject. But in Wednesday's uh, paper, you look at the specific issue of nuclear proliferation, one of the greatest threats probably to world peace, not to exaggerate at the moment. And you fear that our betrayal as the West of an agreement made with Ukraine might only make nuclear proliferation in states such as Iran more likely. Yes. In, that, that, Is I that think fair? That, well, in a kind of tangled way, that's my point. Yeah. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> I mean, basically, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, which collapsed, and different parts of the Soviet nuclear stock were everywhere. Ukraine ended up 20 years ago as the third biggest nuclear power. And we persuaded Ukraine to give up those, those things. We were worried about terrorists taking over. We were worried about weak control. We had rational reasons for, for, for worrying about this. And we offered Ukraine cash, and uh, we offered them a piece of paper. Uh, that piece of paper said we would guarantee Ukraine's territorial integrity. Now we're stuck with it. Uh, and Ukraine is stuck without nuclear weapons. And my feeling is that we should never have entered that kind of deal. Mm. Um, and that there are times when we have to say that there are limits to this whole non-proliferation idea. 
and there are times when we absolutely have to have to enforce it. It sends a, der- a terrible kind of devastating lesson to uh, to other countries thinking of arming up that uh, we can just let Ukraine buckle under, buckle under Russian pressure. Because I, I, I have no doubt that Russia would not have moved on Crimea if Ukraine had had Yeah, if the Ukes had had nukes. Matt Ridley. Roger, who is we in this? Was that NATO or was it the European Union? I mean, this this promise we made, which sounds horribly like what was said to Czechoslovakia in 1938. Yes, yes, it's the piece of paper thing, isn't it, that gives it away. It was Britain, America... Um, who financed it mainly, financed the conversion of factories, and Russia. Russia was the recipient of all these weapons. So it was done in a hurry. It was done with the logic that um, we can't let all these stray nuclear weapons uh, float around the world, but it was wrong. Well, I mean, Trenman. Well, I, the thing that, I, first of all, in the end, it always comes down to talking. I mean, they have to talk, and really, that is how this will be resolved in the end. But also, I think we would be, I mean, the scenes in the Ukrainian parliament have been wild for years, absolutely years. And the idea that these people who can't even like talk to each other in their own parliament without hitting each other and things like that actually have access to nuclear weapons is Kind of. I think we would have been quite worried about all of that. R- Roger, you're looking... Well, well, no, Dan has just taken over the Russian argument and expressed, <laughs> it, <laughs> expressed it brilliantly. Comrade uh, Treneman. Yeah. Yes. Why trust the Ukrainians with something as big as a parliament, for example, <laughs> never mind a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Well, um, uh, no, I, I don't accept that. Yes, we, we will have to negotiate some kind, of, some kind of deal with Russia, I suppose. We meaning... United States and Britain and the West and European Union and NATO and just about everybody. But uh, but why? But Ukraine is b- being forced to negotiate from a position of absolute and ens- uh, almost enslavement. Uh, well, perhaps that's too big, but certainly a weakness that we uh, put it in in the first place. And that's that's my concern. But uh, it's good that the Russian position is represented by Anna. I, so you, but you don't that. accept that Ukraine made its own decision. That we, and you, you completely think that we actually were the ones who did this. Well, uh, Ukraine was on the brink of economic disaster, as it is now. And uh, it needed the cash desperately. And it didn't really need this whole stock of, of – uh, didn't need this nuclear arsenal, which is actually very expensive to, to keep up. So it did the deal. Matt, Matt, Matt Ridley, do you, do you buy Roger's argument that if – Ukraine had had nuclear weapons and putting aside for a moment Comrade Anne's view that um, they wouldn't be, have looked after them responsibly. Do you buy this argument that if Ukraine had had this uh, arsenal, it wouldn't have been attacked or invaded think, by Putin? Well, I think Roger has a point that nuclear weapons really do change the, the diplomatic game uh, and, and you don't have them to use them. You have them to, you, to, to play poker of that kind. One of the things that I'm interested in about this is that if we say, right, Crimea is a fait accompli, Putin's got it, whether we like it or not, there's nothing we can do about it, and we haven't got the appetite to go after him, which is all true, uh, then what does that do for the whole territorial integrity thing that has been so important to world peace for the last 50 years? Mm. You know, does China say, right, we'll have those islands, etc.? Because I do think that the, 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 the guarantee of peace of the last 50 years has been that borders have been sacrosanct mm. in a way that they ne- they weren't before the Second World War. And we do seem to be in a dangerous place at the moment, Roger Boys, where Western agreements, whether it's 
or Western commitments, you know, red line on Syria and chemical weapons. Uh, we will stand by Ukraine's territorial integrity. The West word doesn't seem to mean what it used to. Now, there doesn't seem to be any domestic consequences for President Obama at the moment. He's a very unpopular president, but his foreign policy is very popular. America does not want to get involved overseas. But in the long run, there has to be consequences, does there not, for agreements and words that don't seem to mean anything anymore. Yes, and that's my my generalized worry, which goes well beyond Ukraine. After the Syria decision, or non-decision or withdrawal anyway to use force having threatened force, uh, that w we do have this problem. And it, it sort of highlighted the fact we don't have a foreign policy anymore. Mm. We certainly don't have a conservative foreign policy anymore. It's, it seems to have crumbled. It, it seems to have crumbled. Uh, we don't seem to have anything that we stand for in particular. Uh, Anne Treneman is looking very disagreeable. Well, I certainly think that that is not true. I mean, I think William Hague would... He, would totally disagree. And I actually oh, yeah. ran, in, I ran into, um, <laughs> I ran into a Tory MP yesterday when I was leaving the House of Commons, and um, you know, they were, we, they were, he was totally talking about the piece of paper, what we owe them, you know, the whole idea of, you know, as we were talking about the rights of um, territory, and you know, I was talking about what happened in Kuwait, the first in the first war, and how that was, you know, territory still does seem to be the one thing that many of us still feel is. You know. But at the top of that list of that memo that was photographed by that yeah. um, snapper mm. was actually the protection of the City of London's interests in yeah. um, this mm. whole business. And I do feel we we are probably very constrained now by our own economic problems, and that seems to be dictating what is quite a humble. Well, not only economic problems. Policy. I mean, this is this is legacy of Iraq. Yeah, of I mean, course it is. It really fi fi is. Final word to Matt Ridley before we must move. Well, we're on. not going to send gunboats to the Dardanelles. Where is Lord Cardigan and Lord Palmerston when we need them? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very good question to end that uh, topic on. And I should say to all Times subscribers who are listening to this podcast, if they do go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, not only can you listen to this podcast again and subscribe to it via iTunes, you can get links to Roger's article on this issue and also Justin Webb's article on looking at the domestic uh, debate in America on foreign policy. So I do recommend that link to you. Now, Anne Treneman, second topic. You had a lovely weekend by the seaside in Torquay with um, UKIP. And um, you think it's time we take Nigel Farage as seriously as he takes himself? I know. Well, I think as a sketchwriter, it's slightly bizarre that I'm arguing for someone to be taken seriously. But the thing is, I have sketched Nigel for years and I've also interviewed him for the Times Magazine in quite a long interview. He takes himself very seriously. Um, the stories, I find it very interesting, this whole idea, his new idea, which is what's well, not new, but his, the way he's expressing his idea that Britain has somehow gone too far, which is that not enough English is spoken. He is very, very canny the way he picks his arguments on immigration. And he, at the press conference he had he t uh, in Torquay, he told this story about how he was on a train and until he got to Grove Park, um, he couldn't hear any English spoken. Now, I happen to be also on that train every night, and I have always heard English spoken. <laughs> and, and it is very rare that you do not hear English spoken on the Grove Park train. But it's very interesting the way he picks that. And he's told me the same anecdote a year ago. Mm -hmm. He is a very clever and very ambitious politician. And he didn't used to be. He used to just, I mean, UKIP really did used to be most of the time in the pub. 
Mm. You know, it was very rare so, after so, 11. <laughs> so you, 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 say his, you say his anecdote isn't true from your own experience. So where, where Well, I would is, argue what, I, it might have been true once for him, uh, but so I is, would so, argue. So, so is, he, is he trying to mislead us? Is this coming from opinion polls? Why does he take a position that you and many other people on Twitter, that, including our own Sam Coates, on the day he made this remark said this is not true? Is, is he playing a very naughty game in what he says? Well, like all politicians, he's picking the facts that suit his argument. And the facts that suit his argument is that there's immigration is too high, mm-hmm. particularly immigration from the EU, yep. uh, particularly Eastern European. You know, so he's got quite specific areas that he, you know, that he talks about. But his whole thing, because UKIP is mostly popular in uh, the suburbs, that kind of place. So what's interesting is there are tube trains you can easily get on, and you do hear lots of different languages spoken all the time. Well, some of them that, tourists, well, some of them L- people here. That's London, you know. isn't it? Yeah, but um, I mean, he doesn't make that, you know, that, that argument is not going to go very far, is it? Matt, Matt Ridley, do you buy this argument that we should take UKIP more seriously? Because my own view is that David Cameron could probably win the next election if it was a straight fight with him and Ed Miliband's Labour Party. But so long as UKIP are taking all these sort of right-wing voters from either the Tory party or from the kind of Labour Party voters that a sort of winning Tory party would be getting for itself, um, the Tories are in trouble. Yeah, well, I think the the key, Anne, is maybe to remember that he's an ex-foreign exchange trader. uh, And they know that the key thing is that you you get out at the top, you know, you, you maximize the value of your position, as it were. And so he's probably, he reckons he's maxed out on Tory Eurosceptics. He's now going after ex-BNP soft labor votes who are slightly anti-immigrant. Hence the um, slogan, vote Britain. What was it? it Love Britain, yeah. vote UKIP, which was a former Borrowed BNP, BNP uh, slogan. Yeah, yeah. But um, again, I think it suits him for us to, I mean, he doesn't say that. It suits mm him for us to make that yeah, thing yeah. and then he can say no we're not look at we have this we have yeah, that yeah. And but uh, anyway, we're interrupting yeah. matt Ridley. No, no i was just going to say that the other way in which he's bound to want to sell at the top as it were is in terms of doing a deal after the european elections shortly he knows that his brand is at its best on may the whatever it is this year 20 seconds i think it's the 20 seconds remember <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was emblazoned on all our foreheads. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so surely at that point, he creeps ever so carefully towards some kind of a, 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 a political deal with the Tories that enables him to get some do, seats do, do, do in Do you Parliament? think that? I think even if he wanted to do that, I there's quite a lot of hatred now between a lot of UKIP people in the leadership of the Conservative well, Party. This... And I also think that I'm not entirely sure that Nigel Farage is in fully in charge of his party either. It's quite an independent-minded, awkward, bloody-minded... Um, sort of rank and file now. Absolutely. And that's all true. And he himself personally obviously does not like David Cameron on Mm. some very personal level uh, and might find it easier to deal with a different leader. Yeah. Um, Roger, this, of course, UKIP is not just a British phenomenon, is it? We are seeing the emergence of anti-immigration, patriotic, however you want to describe them, parties across Europe. And, of course, the whole Tea Party phenomenon in America, it's the same People who've been victims of the economic downturn, older, whiter, unhappy voters who don't like but also the modern wealthy, world. Uh, also wealthy ones. I mean, look at Switzerland. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. You know, the, the ban there is quite quite explicit and, and does play on this 
casual uh, racism card, which uh, which mops up quite a lot of UKIP support. But having said that, I think, you know, Farage does have a function. I mean, first of all, I think this whole Grove Park, which is coming to sound a bit like Checkpoint Charlie, and <laughs> a, um, it, uh, uh, metaphor is, is, is typical of Farage. You know, it, it, it's not true, yeah, but there's a, there's a kind of germ of truth in it. But it conjures up an image. A kind, it's a kind of parable. You know, you're in a crowded train equals crowded Britain. You haven't got a sitting place, you know, equals collapse of British infrastructure and everything that we stand for. Mm. And you're surrounded by uh, East Europeans, uh, some of whom are sitting on your seat. Yeah. So uh, I understand why he why he talks like this in, in these parables. And I understand his function, too. And you get this ac- across Europe. With, uh, that's to say people claiming to talk the truth to power. You know, it's uh, basically saying unspoken things that are unspoken by the mainstream parties. A kind of, and, and so that's why I'm a little bit against um, the idea that we should take him too seriously because he himself is playing the court jester, you know, the, 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 the kind of autolycus figure that can speak the truth to leaders mm. and say, you know, in, in, a fearless, in a fearless way. And I think that's his brand. Uh, and it's a brand that's accepted by all of this motley crew that, that form his party. But before we move on, Anne, f- final, final word to you on this segment. Um, Roger's surely right, isn't he? he Nigel Farage is not going to be beaten by us examining his policy prescriptions and his details. He's, he is this anti-politician phenomenon. People are going to vote for him because of a general rejection of what UKIP call the Lib Lab con. That he is yeah. he is the anti politician in this candidate and a simple sort of scrutiny of the kind that we would devote to a mainstream party isn't gonna have the desired effect. He's absolutely a politician who's an anti politician. Um there are lot- even though he's steeped in the expenses and the gravy train of Brussels himself. Exactly. I mean, can you get someone who is more European, actually, Farage? His, he's got <laughs> we should a, call him Farage, His wife, perhaps, who I've met, Farage. who's very nice, German. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he gets his salary from the European Parliament. He spends mm-hmm. half his life traveling there and back. Um, so there's a huge amount of... But he would argue, because I know this, because <laughs> I've spent quite possibly too much time with him, that I'm actually talking uh, that he's not against Europe, he's against the EU. He's yeah. quite specific about that. Yeah, yeah. But he's, um, he's a phenomena, and he is possibly the most interesting politician at the moment. Yeah. Well, look, thanks for that, uh, Anne, and we must move on to our third and final topic. And first of all, I should welcome you, Matt. This is your first time on the podcast. I certainly hope it won't be the last time. And yours, we stay on the subject of Europe, really, in the European Union, because uh, in Monday's column, your Monday column for The Times, you talked about e-cigarettes, which and quoted various research which suggested that this could be the biggest medical breakthrough since vaccines. And you said that 105,000 lives across Europe could be saved every year if people move from cigarettes, conventional cigarettes full of tar to these new e-cigarettes. But it's the dreaded European Union that stood in the way once again. Well, it's not only that that 105,000 people could be saved across Europe. and uh, That's actually, if the current law which has just been passed by the Commission uh, and the European Parliament had not gone into effect because that's simply the effect of taking of, of 
banning the really strong versions of e-cigarettes, which are the ones that people use to quit. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that smokers use to get off. They, they go on to strong ones and they tend to move on to, to softer ones. And uh, when I first started banging on about this a few months ago, I was amazed by the response I got. There's an evangelical lot of people out there called vapors who feel very, very strongly that they, many of them have been trying to quit smoking for decades uh, and patches and gums and all these things are really very ineffective and along come electronic cigarettes and they're quitting in droves and so just to explain to people down. who do not know the electronic cigarettes they contain nicotine don't they but they don't have the tar yeah they have they have a, a, a fluid in them which contains nicotine it evaporates when you puff on it uh, because of a little heating element mm -hmm. so you get nicotine but you don't get anything else or I mean, very little else and most and, people and think nicotine is though quite bad for you well, you, you countered that a little bit in your piece yeah that's the fascinating thing the, the reason why uh, the authorities have been able to sort of go on about the potential risks of these is that in most people's minds it's the nicotine that's the problem nicotine's the addictive thing but then caffeine's addictive you know and mm. uh, there's, the, the, it, nicotine does not, as far as we can tell, cause harm. In fact, there's some slight evidence. It might be good for you. It, it tends to combat Alzheimer's to a tiny extent, it's, it's thought. So the possibility that the cigarette industry, the tobacco industry, is facing what's called its Kodak moment, i.e., you know, when Kodak disappeared completely mm. because of electronic, um, I mean, digital cameras, is really worrying the tobacco industry. And we should give every encouragement to that because these things are a cause of an immense um, uh, sickness and death. But instead of that, we've got the big pharmaceutical companies who make these nicotine replacement therapies, which get prescribed instead, lobbying behind the scenes to try and slow down the e-cigarette revolution mm. uh, because it's not invented here. They've not got a part of it. So... And Roger, were you smokers in the past? Are still smokers? Is this? Yeah, yeah, I used to be. Um, and I miss this cultural, and this is, well, part of e-cigarettes e e actually meet some of my, some of the things that I miss. Um, uh, not that I actually use e-cigarettes or indeed smoke anymore. But this whole business of, uh, you know, when you're in an argument and you, reach forward to stub out your cigarette at the crucial point of your <laughs> argument. Well, you can't do that with e-cigarettes. You could do it with cigarettes. It's not like That's you've been watching too many Hollywood films. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> no, and, um, you know, and the whole gossip circles that arise in office structures oh, yes, where you go outside the, 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 and exchange. The fag break. Yeah, the fag break, yeah, yeah. which is absolutely crucial. Again, you don't need it anymore with e-cigarettes. But I like, maybe I've just got this British oral obsession, you know, but I do like people having things in their mouths while they're talking <laughs> and chatting, you know. Um, and why not e-cigarettes? I, I do think it answers some of the key questions, you know. I mean, it, it, it's, we've removed the passive smoking argument from, uh, from, uh, from you know, this, this relentless ban of, of yeah. cigarettes. And uh, we've made something socially acceptable. Now, I agree, nicotine is probably a toxin of some kind, but then... But that's a choice. It's a choice like taking sugar, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne, you, you gave up smoking. Do, I, was do, a, do, I was a big smoker, and it was the, I think it was the hardest thing I have ever done. Um, you know, it, was, it took me three goes, and I had to go to hypnotism. And if there had been, I tried the patches and just got ill. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, you know, so smoking is such a pernicious and really so bad for you. And it's also bad for everyone else. It's bad for your kids. It's bad for your partner. Anyway, I think that this is kind of 
really interesting because it's really about lobbying. I mean, what you're talking about is really about lobbying, which is, you know, the tobacco company saying, hey, wait a minute, let's all look at this again because, I mean, incidentally, we have these other products that will be affected by this. And I think that we're the Kodak moment is obviously they're putting it off as long as possible. It's definitely coming. I mean, in terms of a society, I mean, you'd only have to go to America where I've been a couple of weeks ago where, you know, it's really people do still smoke, but it's not. It's really not part of the mainstream at all anymore. Could, could you see yourself starting smoking again, either of you two, because of electronic cigarettes? I love not smoking now. You love to not no. smoking. I love not smoking. So you're not even for this fag break moment. Um, you no, know, the, the idea of the putting a, a battery in my mouth is what worries me. I think. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, don't think I, I have to say to it's that. very unnerving being next to someone who's smoking an e-cigarette. I mean, in the sense that it's so weird. Mm. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There's still we, we've inculcated the, the, into ourselves this horror that it is a terrible thing. So when we see an advert for it um, uh, on telly, we are deeply shocked because there's a whole generation that's never seen a, a cigarette advert. The one that shocks, that surprises me, is is the doctors. The BMA has been very vigorous in its opposition to. Um, uh, well, it, f- demanding medicinal regulation for electronic cigarettes. Well, you know, if you're going to re- regulate them as medicine, why not regulate cigarettes as medicines then? Mm. You know, I mean, it's it's a very odd argument. And, and the reason uh, seems to be is that, is that doctors just sort of like the idea that any decline in smoking is caused by public health measures supported by the taxpayer and prescribed by doctors. Th- this one has come from the private sector, from small entrepreneurial companies, without any encouragement, without any official pronouncement. And they don't government. like it because not invented here, to no, use your quote. We, 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 we must end the, this yeah. podcast, but you did at the beginning, Matt, talk about snus. And I think there'll be people, if we do, if you do not explain <laughs> briefly what snus is, there'll be listeners here wondering what it all was. So. Well, I was completely surprised by that. I didn't know this until recently, but Swedes uh, smoke much less than we do and get much less lung cancer. And the reason is because in the 80s, they developed a new version of a, of a, of a kind of snuff that you put under your lip in a sort of tea bag and it's very very popular in Sweden it's called snus and when Sweden joined the European Union it was allowed to opt out of the ban on snus um, so you can and if you're a sort of registered Swede in this country not that Nigel Farage would approve <laughs> you, 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 you can actually acquire them even in this country but you have to sort of come somehow register as a Swede I don't quite understand that I think you, you Nigel Farage I think you meant to say of course <laughs> but, uh, well, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast for the first time, Matt, and I should also thank Anne and Roger as well, two of um, our regulars here. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening, and please do go to thetimes.co.uk, Comments Central, um, where you can leave comments on anything you've heard today. That's certainly what Alan Hawkes did um, last week after he'd heard us talk about um, NHS medical records and how we should keep them safe, and he said, perhaps the use of medical data could be balanced by a prison sentence of 12 months for unauthorised leakage of the data no ifs, no buts, leak and go down so if you have anything to say that you'd like us to read out in next week's podcast please go to the Comment Central blog. So thank you to Dave my uh, producer, until next week, goodbye I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from the Times where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.